John chapter 2, and uh, kind of Sundays and Wednesdays are going to overlap. Those of you that are coming here tonight have already noticed that. Um, Those of you that join us online, it depends on when you join us as to um, whether you've discovered that or not. Um, I talked about uh, the two main scenes um, that we find in John chapter 2, turning the water to wine, which we looked at in detail last week on Wednesday, and then Jesus cleansing the temple. Um, I looked at those as two main scenes with two themes on Sunday, um, that Jesus came to inaugurate a new relationship with God, a new covenant, new wine, right? They ran out of the old wine and he created new wine. And the symbolism of creating that wine in those vessels that were for ceremonial washing. And I talked about um, how the new way of relating to God is not about performance. It's not about religion, right? Um, And it's not about profit. There were people who were taking advantage of the temple, and we're going to look at it in more detail tonight, um, and were seeking to make a profit off of religion. And we see that all over the place today. Um, But with that in mind, these are the two main scenes in John chapter 2. My goal is to finish John 2 tonight and to start in John chapter 3. Um, the, uh, the discussion with Nicodemus, a very famous discussion with Nicodemus, uh, the conclusion of which uh, has the, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And uh, so that will be Sunday. But as for tonight, we're going to look at John 2.13-22 right now, and then uh, we'll hit 23 and 24 at the end. So let's read this together. Uh, This is from the New American Standard Bible, the 2020 update of it. Uh, If you're here locally, it'll be on the screen. Obviously, I would encourage you to bring your own copy of Scripture, whether you bring it up on your mobile device or whether you have a paper copy of Scripture. Um, Those of you that are joining online, you'll see it right over here as well. Here we go. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And within the temple grounds, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and yet you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken, right? So regarding chapter 2 and sort of a theme for chapter 2, commentator Craig Keener says this, At a wedding, Jesus sets aside the purificatory purpose of water pots that embody traditional religious practices. At the gospel's first Passover festival, God's lamb, remember, John the Baptist calls him the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God's lamb then purifies the temple itself 
starting the path of conflict with the Judean leaders that leads to the passion of the gospel's final Passover. So that's a good overview of uh, chapter two as a whole. So first, I think we should note that in the synoptic gospels, Jesus cleanses the temple also. In all three synoptics, he cleanses the temple. But when does he cleanse the temple in the synoptics? At the end of his ministry. On the day of the triumphal entry is when he cleanses the temple in the synoptics. He cleanses the temple here at the beginning of his ministry. So the question is, did he cleanse the temple twice? If not, why did John put the event out of sequence? The second question gets to the heart of whether John's gospel is chronological or not. Commentators have observed that John is arranged theologically, not chronologically. However, as we've observed, John shows great interest in marking time. We saw that beginning in chapter 1, verse 19, right? You know, this day and the next day and the next day and then after three days. And so we're, we seem to be progressing within time. So I don't believe that a theological arrangement precludes the gospel from also following a chronology. Immediately after stating that Jesus and his family and his disciples went to Capernaum for, quote, unquote, a few days, Right? Then it says, the text says, the Passover was near and Jesus went to Jerusalem to observe it. Well, this would lead a reasonable reader to understand that the Passover spoken of and thus the event of cleansing the temple occurred at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So I believe that Jesus cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning and once at the end of his ministry. We don't, we wouldn't assume that you know, Jesus is sort of new on the scene. He's a new teacher. He's a new rabbi. Uh, again, as I've said before, the first miracle is turning water to wine, but he performed other miracles, as we'll see at the end of this chapter um, in Jerusalem. They were already seeing this, and they saw that, uh, he, you know, he was a great prophet. They didn't know, you know, who he was. Perhaps they were wondering whether he was the Messiah or not. In fact, it's likely they were wondering if he was the Messiah. That would be why the the Jews, and every time it says the Jews in John, this is not this, this broad ethnic designation that we would use today. It's really referring to religious leaders uh, and uh, among the, 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 those in the uh, the uh, the Jewish religion, okay? So it could refer to Levites and priests and Pharisees, as we saw in chapter one. But every time it says the Jews in John, it could just very well say religious leaders, right? Um, so as I said, I believe Jesus cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning, beginning and once at the end. We will, if we look at the, the two incidents, we'll see that they differ, there's an obvious escalation at the second cleansing. We wouldn't expect that this new teacher on the scene who makes this symbolic act that, you know, the, the Jews were very accustomed to prophets doing um, very visible symbolic things. Read uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told to do some, you know, very interesting things. Uh, to us, you know, they would seem somewhat crazy, maybe, uh, at one point in time, uh, Isaiah was told to go around naked for a period of time. Well, he wasn't buck naked, right? He was probably, you know, wearing a loincloth and so forth. But it was symbolic of the fact that, at, you know, God was 
saying that the Jews would be taken captive. Um, so they, the Jewish people were accustomed to prophets acting out in these very visible ways, not just speaking words, but acting out symbols. And, uh, you know, Jesus had just started his ministry. Uh, it, it's very likely that, you know, Jesus was in the temple for that period of time during Passover, and then he left, and then things just went right back to normal, right? Business as usual after that. So when Jesus comes to the end of his ministry, uh, he cleanses the temple again. At this first cleansing, the Lord simply rejects uh, turning the temple into what he calls a marketplace or a place of business. Um, there is a scripture in Zechariah 14.21 that talks about the in the end times, there will be no more business uh, that would be done in the, the temple environs. Um, the religious leaders, for their, part, their, for their part, ask for Jesus to perform a miracle to validate his authority from God. At the second cleansing, now, at the end of his ministry, the Lord goes a step further, accusing the business people of making the house of prayer for all nations into a den of thieves. So he makes a, a, uh, an accusation that is more than just, don't turn my father's house into a marketplace. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you're turning it into a den of thieves. Well, there he is taking scripture from the Old Testament as well. Um, when he calls uh, making the temple of den of thieves, that comes from Jeremiah 7.11, so there's a prophet. When he says that the temple is a house of prayer for all nations, well, when the temple was established under Solomon, that's what the Lord said the temple would be. And then we find that phrase, a house of prayer for all nations, in Isaiah 56.7. As an aside, as a pause, you can join me in prayer. I would like to see our little building here become a house of prayer for all people right? I see, you know, I don't know how they're handling it now uh, at Asbury University, but I still have live streams from that, that chapel that they have there, and it's still full all the time. We're talking, this has been going on for, what, coming up on a month now, and these kids are still in there constantly. Um, I don't know, this has just been on my heart today, so I'm just going to uh, share it at the, this juncture with this idea of the house of prayer for all nations. But um, I have never wanted to build a church on the basis of human programming and promotion. And you say, well, <laughs> that's obvious, pastor. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just, I don't like dog and pony shows. You know what I mean by that? All right. Uh, you can, you know, back in the day when I was a youth minister in the colony, I mean, the way to attract a lot of teenagers, you know how to attract a lot of teenagers? You buy pizza. You just serve free pizza. So, you know, if you want, if I had a big event and I wanted a lot of teenagers to come, you know, we'd spend the money and just buy boxes and boxes and boxes of pizza. And, you know, teenagers can put away some pizza, right? And so, yeah, I, I understand, man, I'm not saying that, you know, we don't promote at all, um, but what's fascinating to me and what I would love to see happen at our church is they didn't do any promotion regarding this Asbury. None. None. A couple of kids started praying after one of their chapels and the Holy Spirit just poured out. 
And people that were hungry, they were hungry for God, man, they showed up. Probably curiosity seekers showed up as well. But they, you know, people just naturally shared. We could call this organic evangelism, right? They just, you know, you know, they took pictures or they live streamed or whatever on social media. I mean, we have the ability now to share just like that. So what you consider important, what's, you know, what's moving to you, what's helpful to you, whatever term you want to use, what's motivating to you, you know, you probably take a picture of it, right? You share it. A gadget likes to take a picture of her food and, you know, she puts on, says, hey man, you know, uh, Teresa likes to take pictures of her cats. There are so many pictures of Teresa's cats on, you know, these little cats that have just been born and these giant cats, she has giant cats, okay? So, you know, we, we promote what we like. Well, it's understandable. People take pictures of their kids and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, but the thing is, you know, if something is, is, you know, moving in your life, it's motivating you, it's helpful for you, Man, you want to share it with other people, right? That's organic evangelism. That's, that's just the natural. Jesus didn't hand out flyers, right? Um, there's, a, there's a scripture in Isaiah that is quoted in, uh, concerning Jesus that says, you know, he wouldn't, uh, his voice would not be heard in the streets, right? He didn't go out in the streets and yell and holler and point his fingers at people. He just went in the temple and talked. And as I mentioned to you previously, John the Baptist was clear out in the wilderness. And people had to go, you know, miles and miles to find him. And they went out there and got baptized. Listen, I want people that are hungry for God to come here. Amen? I mean, will you join me in prayer for that? That's what I want to see. I, we need to come alive, Right? It's, there's too much business as usual, and that's what I've kind of titled my Bible study tonight, No More Business as Usual, because these people were seeing, when Jesus came on the scene, this is a new way, new wine, new way. That's what I called Sunday's message, right? This is a new way, no more business as usual. So when Jesus cleansed the temple the second time, he accused them of being a den of thieves, in addition to using the temple for personal profit, it would appear the merchants were also taking advantage of people. They were cheating. They were extorting their customers. After the second cleansing, Jesus actively prohibited anyone from carrying merchandise through the temple. So if you read the two accounts, they're not the same, right? He's, he does this initial cleansing, and it says he made a whip of cords. This just means he took some rope, okay? You know, there were all of these animals, you know, all throughout the, this was, this marketplace that they had set up would have been in the court of the Gentiles. What's very disturbing is that it was actually in the temple grounds, right? It was actually in a place where people came to worship. But they were like, well, that's the court of the Gentiles. They're not important. And yet this is called a house of prayer for all nations, so the Gentiles had to deal with the, the bleeding of sheep, the, the lowing of oxen, you know, um, all of this noise and chatter and money changing and whatever. How can you pray with that? How can you worship with that, right? Now, I mean, you know, I already talked Sunday about how merchandise shouldn't be a part of 
the gospel. It shouldn't be a part of what the church is doing. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, if you had a band and you're, you know, you're playing and you're not getting any you know, money and you've got people that go out and buy merchandise, not the same thing really as making the gospel for sale. I've just got a real problem. I, am, I mentioned this Sunday already, but I've, got, I've just got a real problem with, you know, uh, groups that are ostensibly, you know, worship teams and they're going on tour. Okay. And they're selling tickets. You know, I rem- there's a couple of different preachers that I could mention right now, and I'm not calling anybody on the carpet. You can look at, you know, look at these things yourself, but uh, they're so famous and so popular and they've written books. And so they go on tour, right? And guess what? They charge tickets. They charge money for tickets. They sell tickets so you can hear them preach. I'm sorry, that's nonsense. The gospel's not for sale. I think Jesus would make a whip of cords and drive them out of there. Amen. So that's all this is. He wasn't there to hurt anybody. This is just rope, right? They got all these animals, you know, tied up in boxes and, you know, carts and whatever. And Jesus just found some pieces of rope and twisted them together. And you saw the video, if you were here Sunday, if you didn't watch the Gospel of John movie, and Jesus just swung this thing around and, you know, the animals are going to, you know, (laughs) he must have made, uh, it must have been quite a scene. You know, it really was. What probably would have really made him mad, though, is he turned the tables of the money changers over. Um, So uh, I'm going to read a couple of quotes in a minute of some of the excesses that were going on there and what would have made Jesus really, really angry, okay? Um, It is significant that both of these cleansing events at the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry took place during the preparation for Passover. Um, Preparation for Passover would be kind of like Lent, right? People were to be preparing their hearts. They would cleanse their homes of any, if they had any leaven, any yeast in their homes, they were to get rid of all of it. It's very symbolic of cleansing all of the vestiges of of sin out of your life, right? The big sins, the little sins, you know, the habitual things that we do that we, you know, let ourselves get away with. Um, Lent should be a time when we we take a hard look at ourselves and we say, you know what, I, I need to stop being permissive about this little area of my life or that little area of my life. Well, this is what these folks were supposed to be doing. So Jesus is saying, and yet here you are in, you know, the house of prayer, my father's house, he says, okay, um, making it into a place of personal profit. Um, So rather than cleansing their hearts and looking at their lives, they were profiting from Passover rather than coming there to worship. It calls it, uh, the, the scripture calls it the Passover of the Jews. Well, Jews were enjoined by Mosaic law to go up to Jerusalem for three great pilgrim feasts or festivals. Passover was the greatest of them. Then there was Shavuot, right, which is Pentecost. Uh, Pastor Craig talked about it. I'm pointing here because this is where he sits, Bible study on Sunday. Uh, Pastor Craig talked about that on Sunday. Uh, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit was first pulled out, Okay. Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Sukkot is the Feast of Booths, and it happens in the fall. Um, Will happen on our calendar either late September or even up into October. Uh, The Jewish calendar is lunar, and that's why their holidays move around, which, by the way, is why our Easter moves around, because Easter follows the Jewish Passover, right? So that's why Easter can be as early as the fourth week in March, 
or as late as the third week in um, April. This year, it's April 9th, by the way, okay? Um, a lot of people came to Jerusalem for Passover. Barclay, William Barclay says, astonishing as it may sound, it is likely that as many as 2,250,000 Jews sometimes assembled in the holy city to keep the Passover. Listen, that would be a lot of people coming to a city today. Back then, that's unreal. That's astronomical. Well, Jesus was born under and obeyed the law, right? The Mosaic law said, um, if you are able to get there, you need to go to Jerusalem to observe Passover. By Jesus' day, Barclay says, if, if uh, a Jewish male lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, they had to go. Well, Jesus is actually living further away from that, but he did go. Um, there are three Passovers spoken of in John's gospel. And again, this is why John's gospel should be considered chronological. We understand that Jesus' ministry lasted three, three and a half years because of John's gospel, because of those three Passovers, okay? And Jesus went to Jerusalem for all of them. So um, Galatians uh, 4, 4 through 7 says this about Jesus. This is why it's important that Jesus was born under the law as a Jew and obeyed the law. Only due to this obedience could Jesus fulfill the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it and make a way for all people to be a part of God's family. Now listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 through 7 about this. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, John calls this the Passover of the Jews, which would likely indicate that Christians no longer celebrated the feast by the time uh, our gospel was being written. So by the, if this gospel, John's gospel, was written in the 90s, um, Christians were no longer celebrating uh, the Passover. Uh, George R. Beasley Murray in the Word Biblical Commentary writes this, that the evangelist speaks of the Passover of the Jews indicates that the church no longer observes the feast this is not through hostility, but because the Passover has been fulfilled through Jesus. Well, that's, that's very important. Um, John is very big on the Passover and Jesus being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world because he sees Jesus as our Passover Lamb. Well, early on, Christians were considered uh, a part of Judaism. Christianity wasn't called that. It was called the way early on. And it was thought of as a sect of Judaism. This is why initially uh, the Romans were not uh, opposed to it because by and large, the Romans allowed the Jews to worship freely. Okay? They did not allow other sects to worship freely. So as long as Christians were considered a part of the Jewish religion, they were allowed to continue. But there was always hostility between um, Jews who did not accept Jesus as Messiah and those who did. And eventually Christians uh, understood that, that this was not just uh, new wine being poured into the old wineskins of Judaism. New wine requires new wineskins, right? Something new is going on, as I said on Sunday. 
Um, through the leadership of the Apostle Paul and others who evangelized the Gentiles, the gospel was understood as the new way. And in fact, as I just said, it was called the way. The word Christian is used a couple of times in Acts, right? But referring to Christianity as the way is used, well, Jesus, first of all, what did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. In Acts 9, 2, in Acts 18, 25, and 26, in Acts 19, 9, in Acts 19, 23, in Acts 24, 14, in Acts 24, 22, Christianity is called the way. This is a new way of relating to God, not dependent upon the law of Moses and the covenant that God made with Israel. It is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. That's what Luke says when uh, the, the Lord's Supper is being introduced. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And Paul re- repeats that when he talks about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. And then Hebrews 12, 24 talks about the new covenant established in the blood of Jesus. This is prophesied by Jeremiah in uh, Jeremiah 31, 31. The old covenant uh, has become obsolete. Thus, it is unnecessary to live by the ceremonial and ritual laws. Uh, Paul received confirmation of this at the Jerusalem Council from Peter and the other apostles. And we find that, uh, that incident or that, uh, uh, that meeting in uh, Acts chapter 15. The Gentile church didn't need to follow the law of Moses, but they were instructed not to offend their Jewish brothers or fall back into the perverse sexual practices of their fellow Gentiles. James, the half-brother of Jesus and the pastor of the Jerusalem church, said this. They wrote a letter, in fact, with these instructions. Therefore, it is my judgment, this is, by the way, this is Acts 15, 19 through 21. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not cause trouble for those from the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from acts of sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For for from ancient times or ancient generations, Moses uh, has those who preach him in every city. So, you know, we've gone through this uh, in this room before, but each of these things that James... uh, says they should, the Gentiles should avoid are causes for offense, all right? He says that they should uh, um, abstain from things contaminated by idols. Well, this would give offense to other Gentiles as well as Jews. They should abstain from sexual immorality. Well, this would give offense to God uh, and should give offense to uh, other uh, holy people, godly people. And then this idea of abstaining from what has been strangled and from blood Strangle just means that the animal has not been properly bled out, right? This is what constitutes kosher meat in part today, is that the animal has to be completely bled out, right? And this goes all the way back to Noah. Um, at the conclusion of uh, the, the uh, incident with the ark, um, uh, God establishes a new covenant with Noah, and there is this idea throughout the Old Testament that the life is in the blood, right? And that you are not to eat blood or partake of blood because that is, uh, it's, it's unholy, okay? Because you're disrespecting life, essentially. So um, these were the practices, not that they had to obey all the P's and the Q's of the 
Mosaic law. Uh, there was a big beef between uh, the, uh, the Jewish church and the Gentile church about circumcision, right? This is why, you know, you, you just hear about this constantly throughout the New Testament, circumcision, circumcision. You're like, why are they obsessed with circumcision, right? Because it was how you set aside your family um, as being a part of, of Abraham and the covenant to Abraham. And Paul understood, and rightly so, that circumcision was no longer necessary in this, under this new way of relating to God, okay? Then it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem, okay? The, the, it says the Passover of the Jews was happening, and he went up to Jerusalem. Well, even though Jerusalem was south of Galilee, right? It says that previous to that, it says that he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples all went to Capernaum for a few days, in the, God, the Synoptic Gospels, we find that Jesus had uh, set up the base of his ministry in Capernaum and had a house there, okay? So in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus' ministry begins in Galilee and is there for a while before it moves south to um, Judea, to Jerusalem. Um, so even though Jerusalem is south, and we would think of going down to something that is south, um, pilgrims always, no matter where they were coming from, they always went up to Jerusalem because it's built on a plateau and it's above everything around it. It's between 1,500 and 2,100 feet above sea level um, and it sits above the land around it. But more than geography, it was the holy city. It's valued above all others. So Jesus may have been alluding to this when he called his followers to shine their light so that they would be like a city set on a hill, a city that cannot be hidden because it is set on a hill. Then it says he drove out those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves. Well, these were available for pilgrims to purchase for sacrifice in the temple. So it'd be a lot easier than bringing your animal from, you know, many of these pilgrims may have traveled hundreds of miles to get there, okay? And they knew that they could buy the animal that they needed to offer once they got to the temple. It was more convenient than bringing the necessary animal for sacrifice. One could simply buy what was required. Well, this detracts from the purpose of worship, offering your best to the Lord. Instead, you could just buy something acceptable from a merchant. Huh, not much of a sacrifice there. Sounds like church today, you know? And just buy what you need, okay? Then it talks about the money changers. Obviously, uh, B.F. Westcott writes, Obviously, no coins bearing the image of the emperor or any heathen symbol could be paid into the temple treasury, and all offerings of money would require, uh, would require to be made in Jewish coins. So, you know, I don't know. It would be like, okay, uh, no, you can't give cash in this church because it has a picture, you know, of a pagan president uh, on it, right? You know, or flip it around the other way. No, you can't give by credit card or anything like that. You have to give cash because cash is in God we trust, right? You know what I'm saying? So you're like, oh man, but I don't have it. So what am I going to do? Well, what you can do is you can, you know, pay our PayPal and then we'll give you some cash. But by the way, that's going to cost you some interest, Right? So, you know, you want to give $100, then you're going to have to give $125 to our PayPal, and then I'll give you $100, and then you can put $100 in the... And you'd be like, scam, what's going on? But this is exactly what was happening with these folks, right? 
this left plenty of room for both profit and abuse, which is why Jesus called it a den of thieves. Listen to what William Barclay says was going on. Pilgrims arrived from all over the world with all kinds of coins. So in the temple courts, there sat the money changers. If their trade had been straightforward, they would have been fulfilling an honest and necessary purpose, right? Uh, you know, if you go to another country, you have to go and you have to exchange your money, right? Makes sense. Um, but what they did was to change, a co- was to change, was to charge a commission on every half shekel of change that they had to give if a larger coin was tendered. So if a man came with a coin, the value of which was two shekels, he had to pay to get it changed and again to get his change of three half shekels. In other words, the money changers made a considerable capital off of him. On such a transaction, the equivalent of one day's wage. So they were making a lot of money off of this. Uh, they were essentially extorting money. There was also abuse with regard to the sacrificial animals. Barclay writes this, but the law was that any animal offered in sacrifice must be perfect and unblemished. Now it was supposed to come from your flock. See, your flock, your herd, right? The temple authorities had, had appointed inspectors, mumke, um, they were called, to examine the victims which were to be offered and a fee was charged for this inspection. Oh, we'll inspect. We're going to see if your animal is perfect or not. But you need to pay me to, in, to, the, to do the inspection. If a worshiper brought a victim outside the temple, this is an animal sacrifice. If he bought it outside the temple, it was, to all intents and purposes, certain that it would be rejected after examination. Again, that might not have mattered much, but a pair of doves, and this would be the cheapest offering, Right? You couldn't afford sheep, goat, you know, ox, whatever. You buy a pair of turtle doves, right? A pair of doves could cost as much as 15 times more inside the temple than if it had been purchased outside. So, you know, this is like buying a Coke in a movie theater, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, you can go to, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, 7-Eleven you know, get a Coke there, it's less than a dollar. The movie theater is going to be like $3, something like that, okay? Um, here again was barefaced extortion at the expense of poor and humble pilgrims who were practically blackmail, blackmailed into buying their victims from the temple booths if they wished to sacrifice at all. Once more, a glaring social injustice aggravated by the fact that it was perpetrated in the name of pure religion. So yeah, it's extortion. Worse, it is happening shamelessly within the boundaries of God's holy temple. Those in charge of the temple evidently considered this of no consequence, perhaps because the market was set up in the court of the Gentiles, as I said earlier. They're unclean anyway, right? Barclay writes this about that. The conduct in the temple court shut out the seeking Gentiles from the presence of God. It may well be that this was uppermost in Jesus' mind and John's gospel when, uh, excuse me, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus is recorded as, recorded as quoting, this is a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus was moved to the depths of his heart because those who were seeking God were being shut out of his presence. So where, where's the fear of the Lord, right? Um, is it any wonder that Jesus was enraged? I like the video clip from the Gospel of John movie. It's like, you know, there's a, 
little bit of a, a jump cut into Jesus' face and then a jump cut into Jesus' face and he's, you know, he's upset, right? There is righteous indignation, righteous anger, and that's what he was expressing there. Um, he certainly, that is, Jesus certainly brought the fear of God into the temple when he drove out the merchants. It was not business as usual that day. It should not be business as usual in our lives either. I'm telling you, business and the gospel should not be together, okay? Our, the basis for the way we do life is not business. It's not trade. It's worship, okay? We offer our first and our best to the Lord, and we trust him to bless us. And I'm, I'm not saying if you're a business person, you can't be in business. I'm simply saying the gospel is not for sale, right? Um, <clears throat> when the disciples considered this, they remembered this phrase that comes from Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. The quote refers to Messiah. Uh, and Jesus demonstrated that zeal before their very eyes. The temple was his father's house. We see this going all the way back to the incident in Luke chapter two. Do you remember when Jesus was 12 and uh, they came to Jerusalem? Uh, this perhaps was, you know, his bar mitzvah, okay? And after they had come to Jerusalem, his family had come to Jerusalem with this, you know, uh, this group of pilgrims and they left. They got three days out and they, well, they, they probably were less than three days out. It took them three days to find Jesus. They got a ways away from Jerusalem and they couldn't find Jesus. Where's Jesus, right? You know, what, where's he at? And so they turned around and they came back and they searched everywhere. It took them three days to find him. Where did they find him? In the temple. And his mother's upset. Right? <laughs> you know, you may be the son of God, but why did you do this to us? And Jesus just very simply, without guile, looks at her and says, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Wow. It's his father's house. He's like, you're not going to make my father's house into a place of merchandise, right? Zeal for your house will consume me. Um. At another point in his ministry, Jesus pointed out that this is a problem with the heart. Um, he was talking about uh, the, the Pharisees. He said, this people worships me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Man, if you're just there to bank, your heart's not there to worship, okay? It's like, why do we come to church on Sunday? <laughs> you know? I, these days, I'm sure that if people are coming at all, they're coming for good reasons because it's just too easy to stay home. But, you know, you can just get into a habit. You can get into a habit and it's a good habit. You can get into a habit and it's a bad habit, but you can get into a good habit and sort of lose focus. You're no longer really paying attention. It's just kind of what you do. Um, and so, you know, Jesus might say that to us. And by the way, that's a quote from Isaiah uh, this people worships me with their lips, you know, but their heart is far from me. So what gets you stirred up, right? What are you zealous for? Are you zealous for the Lord? The church, believe believers in Jesus, we form the temple today, right? Not the church, a building, but we are the temple of God today. When we gather for worship, are you reverent or are you distracted? You personally are a temple. When we gather for worship, um, do you allow the Lord to fill your heart? 
What fills your life is equivalent to what fills the temple courts, okay? What is going on in your mind when we're in here worshiping, right? That's, you know, what business is going on here? Well, it can't be business as usual if we're going to follow Jesus. Are there idols in your heart that Jesus would break or drive away with a whip? Those are thoughts to consider, especially during Lent. So the disciples' response was, hey, this has got to be Messiah. Here's this fulfillment of this quote, zeal for your house will consume me. The response of the Jewish leaders was, what sign can you show? What miracle will you perform? From this and what is said in verse 23, and we'll get to that in just a moment, it's obvious that Jesus was performing miraculous signs while in Jerusalem. Well, here it is, verse 23. Um, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name as they observed his signs, which he was doing. So John doesn't list those signs here. As I have indicated before, John's gospel is organized around seven major miracles, and I think I listed those uh, recently, last week perhaps. John doesn't record the, the signs, but the synoptics give us an idea. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus healed the sick. Uh, he opened the eyes of the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. Uh, he healed lepers. He cast out demons. And ultimately, you know, he raised the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. That's the greatest sign that uh, we find in John. That's John chapter 11. Well, this convinced many that Jesus was a great prophet, perhaps even the Messiah. And it helps to explain why the rulers of the temple didn't seek to arrest Jesus. Not yet. The people believed he was someone great. They, that is the Jewish leaders, feared the reaction of the masses at this point. So they're thinking, okay, the people may be thinking that uh, this is the Messiah. They believe that the Messiah will perform miraculous signs. So uh, Barclay, William Barclay says, the popular idea of Messiah was connected with wonders. So the Jews said, by this act of yours, you have publicly claimed to be Messiah. Now show us the wonder which will prove your claim. But Jesus refused to perform on command. Jesus isn't going to do a trick for you, okay? Um, Listen to what Jesus said when they asked for a sign in Matthew's gospel. He said, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, and so no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster or the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights." So the significance of Jesus' reply here in our gospel to the Pharisees, um, or the significance of the reply to the Pharisees in Matthew's gospel is similar, or really it's the same, as what he says to the Jews here. Um, Jesus answered them. Here's, here, they said, we want a miracle. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Now, this is in our gospel. This is the very next thing he says. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So you see how these two are connected, right? Jesus is saying, listen, this is the only miracle I'm going to show you. You're going to put me to death, and I'm going to rise within three days. What Jesus said at the end of his ministry, as recorded in Mark's gospel, will help us understand this because of some added detail. Um, So remember, cleansing of the temple happens at the end in the synoptics. Here's Mark's... uh, Uh, record of what Jesus said there. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands, right? So God did destroy the temple, 
In 70 AD, it was ripped to the ground and it has never been rebuilt. In fact, what is standing on the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem? It's a very famous building. It's the most famous building in Jerusalem right now. The Dome of the Rock, right? There's a big golden dome there. It's a Muslim, I don't know, whatever they call it. Uh, I don't think they would call it a temple. Um, it's one of, their, one of their holiest sites. Short of starting a major war, the temple's not going to be rebuilt right there. Okay? It was torn down because the temple now, as I indicated earlier, is us, right? Jesus died for our sins and he rose on the third day to overcome death forever. This made the sacrifices offered in the temple, the sacrifices made with hands, obsolete. That's why Jesus came to earth. It is the ultimate sign of his authority and identity as the son of God. Jesus became the cornerstone of a new temple. He has established a worldwide community of people who are living stones in a new temple. I quoted this at the end of my sermon on Sunday uh, in 1 Peter 2, 5. Uh, Peter says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple does not have to be rebuilt. It certainly doesn't have to be rebuilt before Jesus returns. Now, there are good, godly, believing people who have certain ideas about end times that think that has to happen. That's fine. We can agree to disagree. I'd be happy to have fellowship with those folks, okay? But I don't believe the temple has to be rebuilt. In fact, I don't believe it will be rebuilt because we are the temple. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture uh, they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So the disciples didn't understand all of this right away. Not until Jesus rose and opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You and I cannot understand the things of God without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. At the end of John, it says, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. At the end of Luke, he opened their minds to understand the scripture. You and I need to pray, as we try to do at the beginning of our Bible study here, you need to pray every time you read the Bible and ask the Lord to give you understanding, to help you apply it, to help it to become your word, right? Because without the assistance of the Holy Spirit, it's just a bunch of religion, okay? It's like, uh, remember the old Peanuts, Charlie Brown, okay? You know, it was a comic strip, but they made a bunch of uh, Peanuts movies and so forth. What happened every time the adults talked? You never heard an adult talk in Peanuts. It was always, when the teacher talked, it was always, and sometimes I'm preaching and I just think, is that what you're hearing? <laughs> you know? Um, it, but religion, uh, it's uh, in Isaiah 28.10. I think there's a description there that is a, is a good idea of how uh, the Lord comes across to people who are just into religion. Precept upon precept upon precept. Line upon line upon line. Here a little, there a little. What? I don't know. I don't know how this applies. It's just a bunch of stuff that I'm, it's kind of, Sue is how I used to look at math because I couldn't apply it. I didn't understand why. Like math, no, math, yes, I understood. Algebra, I was like, what, 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 X, Y? I don't know what this means. I couldn't apply it to my life, right? And so I just, 
it was just blah, 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 and this property and that property. I just didn't listen to any of it. And then I get to college, and uh, I got a Bachelor of Arts degree, so I didn't have to have heavy math. You just had to have one year of math, or you could take logic. And I was like, I hate math. I'm going to take logic. I'm sitting in logic, and we're diagramming logical arguments, and I was like, this is algebra. Algebra was just teaching logic. Why couldn't my teacher just tell me that? And then I would have said, oh, well, that makes sense. I can apply that. Now I want to learn it because it's teaching me how to think. Algebra is just logic. That's all it is. It's excellent. It teaches you how to think, right? Geometry I could understand better because you're using actual figures and all this other stuff. But, you know, <coughs> we need to see how these things apply to our lives. And the Holy Spirit gives us that understanding. Um, the Holy Spirit makes the Word of God come alive. Listen to this from Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, that's what we need. We need that word. So receive the spirit as your teacher and believe the word as it is preached. Now, we'll conclude John chapter 2 with these last uh, verses. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name as they observed the signs which he was doing. I quoted that earlier. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all people and because he did not need anyone to testify about mankind because he himself knew what was in mankind. Jesus was in the perfect position to understand human beings. He is God and he is a man. He could look into his own heart and he could look into the hearts of others. He could see with an insight that only God has. And he knew that he was not going to trust the faith of these people or the purported faith of these people. As I pointed out earlier, Jesus performed many miraculous signs that John does not record. I believe that this is because John recognized the circulation of the Synoptic Gospels or the stories that were in the Synoptic Gospels, and they record more of Jesus' miracles. But many people believed in Jesus as a result of what he was doing. However, Jesus didn't trust their faith, either that it was real or that it would last. He knew the human heart. He was human and he was divine. He knew the human tendency to react with great feeling, then fall away. Listen, this is what happens in revivals. And we just have to be honest with it, okay? Revivals happen. There's an outpouring of the Spirit. People respond. And sometimes people respond emotionally. And then the feeling wears off. And sometimes after the feeling wears off, they drift off, okay? But if it's a genuine outpouring of the Spirit, there will always be uh, that... Uh, that group of people that stick with it, okay? Um, we'll call them a remnant. And uh, the last revival that happened at Asbury University was in 1970, and there was, uh, there was grapefruit as a result of that because I didn't say grapefruit, great fruit. <laughs> that was the result of that. Um, I mentioned this before when I've been talking about this revival. There was a, uh, a revival at Baylor University, I think, I want to say 1945, and there were missionaries all over the world as the result of that. Um, but Jesus recognized this in his ministry, right? That there were going to be people that were going to respond, 
but they weren't going to stick to it. Okay, uh, he told a parable. Sometimes it's called the parable of the sower, but it should be really should be called the parable of the soils because it talks about seed that is sown. Okay, they threw the seed out, and it is sown or planted in different kinds of soil. There are two types of soil that um, I think are applicable in this situation when there is a response, a reaction, but there's no fruit. Jesus said, the one sown with seed on the rocky places, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, right? These are the people that come to the revival and woo, 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 right? They immediately receive it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution occurs because of the word, immediately he falls away. Hey, you know what's great? We just went through all of this pandemic and protest and politics, and you're still here, aren't you? There's plenty that have fallen away, but you're still here, right? That speaks well of you. When persecution happens, right? Persecution can come from your family, can come from your job. I mean, these days, you know, there are Christians that are just being rejected, you know, from working at certain companies or school districts just because they're Christians. And then there's this other type of soil that is applicable here. And the one sown with seed among the thorns, this is one who hears the word. And the anxiety of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Okay? So <clears throat> this is kind of like faith, but without repentance, without these adjustments. Jesus told another parable um, that's usually called the parable of the rich young ruler because it's, it's, uh, it is told in the synoptics, in all three synoptics. In one, it says he's rich, and one, it says he's young, and one, it says he's a ruler. So we call him the rich young ruler. And uh, he says, hey, how can I inherit eternal life, Jesus? Well, you know, he's under the old covenant, the covenant of the law. Jesus said, obey the law, keep the law, okay? What, that, what that's going to do is it's, it's going to bring him to Christ. It's going to convict him of his sin. It's going to bring him to repentance in any area. And the man said, I've done that from the time I was young. I've kept the law. And it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said, one thing you lack, you need to go sell everything you have, Give it to the poor and then come follow me. What do you think happened? You probably remember, don't you? It says he went away sad because he had a lot of money. He didn't want to give it up. So wealth, riches, you know, uh, the desire for other things. It's like, yeah, I want Jesus, but, but, but I don't want to leave this behind. I know this relationship that I'm in is wrong. It's a sexual relationship and we're not married, Right. Uh, you know, it's a gay relationship or it's a, you know, it, it's just immoral. It's, it's, it's twisted. It's bad. But, but, you know, we're in love and I'm just, I'm not going to leave that. Then there's this response and this reaction, but without repentance, it doesn't last. Jesus knows who to trust. When Jesus began teaching difficult things, we've observed this before, things hard to understand, many of his disciples left him, right? Ominously, that is in John 6, 6, 6. Even Jesus' closest disciples fell away at the end. But after the resurrection, 11 of the 12 returned and were restored. We all fall, right? We all fall down, but not, we don't all fall away. I love this from Psalm 37, 23, and 24. The steps 
of a man are ordered by the Lord or established by the Lord. And he delights in his way. Though he fall, he will not be hurled down because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Amen? You may fall, but if you have genuine faith, even a little tiny fingernail of faith, the Lord's got your hand, right? It's like when Jesus is walking on the water. This is Matthew's account of uh, uh, Jesus walking on water, which, by the way, is found, uh, that is found in uh, uh, John's gospel as well. But in Matthew's account, Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter says, if that's really you, then bid me come out of the boat. Jesus said, come on. You know the story. So Peter steps out. But what happened? He started getting scared because it's really windy and the waves were kicking up. And as soon as he got his eyes off of Jesus, what happened? He went under. And I guess he was probably gurgling it in a throat full of water. Help, help. And I love it. It says, and immediately Jesus took him and they were back in the boat. See, you're going to fall. You're going to fail. Right? I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying that's just life. Okay? We fall short of the glory of God. That's why we need grace. Now, I'm not saying aim to fall. I'm not saying justify the fall. Repent. We need to. Okay? But, you know, keep that hand up there. Let the Lord hang on to you and love you. Um, there's a lot of talk about trusting Jesus. But the bigger question is, does Jesus trust me? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Praise God, he is willing and he is able to give me a new birth and a new heart. And that's what we're going to look at in John chapter 3. All right? God bless you. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to give us feedback, uh, you can go to our website, lifewellchurch.com, and you will find uh, on the main page, there's a feedback tab, and you can click that. You can fill out that form. Uh, you can give us feedback. You can ask for prayer requests, all sorts of things like that. I hope that you are able to do this. We have a text service uh, that I use to send out information on our church throughout the week. And uh, basically, all you need to do is text the word LIFEWELL, from your phone to 94000. And if you do that, it'll drop you into that news text list, and you'll get a couple of those texts uh, from us every week.